This is Common Cozy, episode 54. You're listening to the Common Cozy podcast. I'm Beth Wyatt, your insomnia, rest, and self care coach. I'm also an artist, avid crocheter, expert napper, and occasional blogger. This podcast is full of practical advice for anyone looking for relief from insomnia symptoms, racing thoughts, and bedtime anxiety. I also cover general sleep topics, stress relief, and peaceful self-care rituals. If your life could use a little less busyness and a little more stillness, fill up your diffuser and find your coziest blanket because you're in the right place. This episode is part of my sleep disorder series, and I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. I met Julie Flygar online through our Instagram accounts and our mutual interest in sleep. Julie is the founder of Project Sleep and an advocate for people living with narcolepsy. Before meeting Julie and reading her book, I didn't know anything about narcolepsy. I thought it was what most of us think it is, falling asleep suddenly without any control of where you are or what you're doing like that girl in Deuce Bigelow who falls asleep while bowling. Narcolepsy is very misunderstood and not all that rare, and that's why I wanted to have Julie tell her story. I think you're going to find this really interesting. My guest today is Julie Flygar. She's the founder and CEO of Project Sleep. She's a narcolepsy spokesperson. She's an award-winning author. Thank you, Julie, for being on the Common Cozy podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's, it's so exciting. And thank you for having a podcast that is dedicated to sleep health. Can you give us just a, uh, like a two or three minute intro, if that's possible, into who you are when you're not advocating for a rare sleep disorder? Because <laughs> we'll get into that, definitely. So um, I live in Los Angeles. I've been here for over five years now, and I absolutely love this city. And I love where I live, which is Los Feliz, it's, which means the happiness. And mm. I say my area is the happiness. So I love hiking and uh, walk running. Um, and so one of my quests right now is there's all these stairs, all these public staircases throughout LA that are kind of hidden. And so there's a book where there's 42 different stairwalks across LA. So I'm on a mission to complete all 42 of these stairwalks around LA. Um, so I just like being outside and um, I love dancing. And um, I'm really good friends with all of my neighbors in my building. We call our building Melrose Place. <laughs> it's not as fancy as the TV show, but we do have a pool in the center courtyard. And so it's just become like a really wonderful community where we have dinner parties together and game nights and we've just become a family. We really look out for each other and walk each other's dogs and things like that. So um, I just feel really lucky to have such a wonderful place to live. And and honestly, like having a pool in my courtyard and having a palm tree, I feel like I'm on vacation every single day. Like I'm from New Hampshire. I grew up with snow, snow, snow. Um, and so I just feel really lucky to live in L.A. and um, and feel like it's good for my energy and for my health. Hmm. Your neighborhood sounds amazing. I want to live in Melrose Place. <laughs> it is amazing. You should come live here. <laughs> yeah, we're snow, snow, snow here as well. Um, we first met online, I would say about a year ago. I got a copy of your book, Wide Awake and Dreaming a Memoir of Narcolepsy. And your book read like a novel. I have to say I don't read a lot of memoirs, but I, I read a lot of nonfiction. And, and it never felt like I was reading somebody's true story it felt like I was reading a novel it had every like it had romance it had you know the excitement and um the emotion and I I would go to bed early just so I could get in like an hour of reading your book until I fell asleep involuntarily (laughs) as soon as I started I was like okay yeah she's she's a writer (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely love writing. And so I had like studied creative nonfiction back Mm. in college. And then I went to law school to sort of follow in my dad's footsteps. 
And I always felt like this pull back to creative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And so then once I had, you know, studied uh, health law and understood all the challenges that narcolepsy was facing um, as far as getting better treatments, but also raising awareness, it all at once clicked to me that I could use that creative nonfiction background to help to open people's hearts and minds to the real condition of narcolepsy because I hadn't seen any accurate representations or enticing representations in the media. It had all seemed really inaccurate and, and comical. Yes. Um, and uh, narcolepsy certainly wasn't funny. Um, it was really serious, but you know, there was a lot of really interesting parts too. So, um, so it's just like means so much to me that you would say it would read like a novel. Um, <laughs> that's my hope. <laughs> I'd like to start at the beginning. Can you tell us about your symptoms and when they first started? I think I started getting sleepy in college and I was an art history major. So um, a lot of the cl classrooms were like those really dark classrooms with the projection screens uh, showing like Renaissance art or something. <laughs> so that's when I started going to the bathroom during like almost every single class to wake myself up. Mm. And um that became sort of a tradition, I, although it wasn't really, I wasn't really conscious of that. And then when I graduated from college, I was working just like as a file clerk at a law firm for a year before I started law school. And that was the year that I first noticed other things. So that's when I was, you know, laughing with my roommate in our living room at a, like she'd said something funny. And I felt like, my knees buckle slightly like almost like she had poked behind my knees or something but like she hadn't and so it was a very strange sensation so right away I said did you see that my knees just the strangest thing they just kind of buckled and my roommate said no I didn't see anything and so that took me a while to figure out after a few times of that happening that it was always happening when I was laughing hmm. uh, and so then I would say to my coworkers at work like don't make me laugh my knees my knees hmm. um and then that same year is when I started, you know, I, there was one night that I thought I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard a burglar breaking in through the window in the living room. And then I saw my door open and this man rush at me with his arms out to my neck. And I was terrified and I just wanted to kick him and run away, but I couldn't move. And I just shuddered in terror thinking like, what's he about to do to me? Uh, and then... I don't know how much time passed. I just struggled and felt afraid. And then I, w I looked up again and he wasn't there. And so then I looked around um, my apartment. Um, I could move now. So I got up and I, and I like looked at the window and it wasn't broken into. I realized my roommate was still asleep. And I thought she couldn't have slept through that. It was really, really noisy. So then I thought, well, I guess there wasn't a burglar. But I couldn't say it was a dream either because I'd had plenty of dreams before and this didn't feel like a dream. Hmm. Um, it felt like it had happened right there and, and I could still remember like the picture of his face in my head. So, um, and that kept happening over that, that year as well. So then I started law school and um, all those things just kind of got worse. <laughs> and, and, you know, law school is a pretty serious environment. Um, I was ready. I was, I had, I thought like the drive to do really well there. And I just kept feeling like I was falling short. Um, I was falling asleep when I was doing my homework or I was entering like a, like a lot of hazes during classes. Um, it just was a lot more invisible though than I think a lot of the perceptions uh, of the condition. So that's why it's, I really try to raise awareness that sleepiness can be with your eyes open. Um, because I was experiencing a lot of automatic behavior is the term I know now, but like I was typing um, in class and then I would look down at my notes and I'd be, I knew I was sleepy, but I was just trying to just, just stay with it, stay with class. And then I looked down and there would be like random celebrities names mixed, oh. mixed in with notes or just gibberish. Hmm. So, um, so that was a lot of the experience was more of a, a fogginess or a haze and actually completely falling asleep always. Did you have any guesses as to what it was? Was there something that kind of popped into your mind and went, oh, it's probably just this or it's just stress or? Oh, everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, excuses for sleepiness. I, <laughs> I had convinced myself of all the above. I thought I can't handle, I can't handle hot rooms. I can't <laughs> handle dark rooms. Um, I haven't had enough caffeine. At one point I was convinced that if you had too much caffeine, you also got sleepy. And maybe that's true. 
But um, I had just, I had like thought of all of those kind of excuses uh, for the sleepiness. The, um, you know, my knees buckling with laughter. Hmm. I started asking doctors about that right away because I really felt like that was something medical and something, you know, else. I never associated that with my sleepiness at all, actually. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, it was just in the middle of the day, like laughing. Um, So, um, you know, I, in my book, I talk about how like the first doctor I brought it up to, she thought, um, she said to try breathing deeper when I laugh, maybe I wasn't breathing deep enough. And I I thought like, she thought like I was on the verge of fainting, like I wasn't getting enough oxygen. And I just knew that wasn't it, but I didn't know how to tell her like, no, (laughs) like what else do you think it could be? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Next. (laughs) And I tried Googling around, um, you know, the next way I experienced that was probably, um, with sex. And it felt a little bit different. It felt like my head giving out. Um, and when that started happening, I called that like my my head thing. It, it wasn't always, you know, I didn't have the language that mm-hmm. we use um, to talk about that symptom that I know now know is cataplexy. Um, and I do think that's almost like a communications challenge uh, that our community is facing. Because if we're using terms that don't resonate with people that are experiencing the symptoms um, without knowing what it is, then it's really hard to find the right diagnosis. Right. And you think too, if if something happens to you, usually the first thing we do is we go on Google and we look up what just happened to us. But how do you Google head falling during sex or something like that? Right. It's, it would be so hard to find, to find an answer when you don't even really understand what's happening. Right. And I don't think I even said knees buckling because that's a very key term I know now. But I think I thought of it as my knees getting weak. Okay. And I don't think that's a language you use as much in the medical and clinical communities. Right. Weak in the knees is usually like you're falling in love. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's more fun. Not a sleep disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you have any issues with doctors really not understanding or not taking you seriously, not knowing... How many doctors do you think you had to see before someone kind of knew what was going on? Well, you know, for me, a lot a lot of the process was figuring out for myself that mm-hmm. something was going on. The cataplexy I knew was weird, but the sleepiness, it was years of that building up before. Mm-hmm. And it was the end of my first year of law school where I realized I thought I might have a sleep disorder. Mm-hmm. So that was when I... Um, it was during exams at the end of my first year, and so I didn't have a lot to do. All you had to do was, like, a whole week to just study for exams. <laughs> I got a full night's sleep. I had my coffee, my oatmeal in the morning, and it was just a 15-minute drive to school. And I remember getting sleepy, like, about halfway through the 15-minute drive, but thinking, I'm just a few minutes from school. Just get there. It'll be fine. And the next thing I remember, I woke up in the parking lot of the law school. Mm -hmm. And my car was parked. My seat was reclined. I was fine. But I couldn't remember getting there. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, like, I didn't have the picture in my head of, like, pulling into school or choosing that parking spot. And that's the moment that I realized, like, no more excuses. Like, everything was lined up for, like, so I could have the best wakefulness, and I can't even stay awake 15 minutes to drive in the morning. That was the first time I thought maybe I have a sleep problem, and I only was familiar with sleep apnea. Um, My brother-in-law had sleep apnea. And so um, at that point, at the end of, you know, after exams is when I finally went to a primary care doctor at Boston College, and I, I, you know, pretty much very clearly delineated the problems I wanted to speak to her about. So I said, one, I think I have a sleep disorder. And as I described my sleepiness to her, um, she actually said that she wasn't sure if that was any different than normal sleepiness. Um, Hmm. That I said I was having trouble driving. She said, well, sometimes everyone has trouble driving and gets tired. Like even I have to pull over and get a coffee. And (laughs) it was in that moment to, to like, like, I don't know if we're talking about the same kind of sleepiness. So I had no way of measuring mine. And to look back now, that's so angering because I was so far gone to sleepiness. Um, and so then the second problem I brought up with her was that knee buckling with laughter. I still didn't know what that was. Um, and she thought that could be neurological, but I might have to just, you know, get used to it. And so that was getting worse uh, and affecting more emotions and more parts of my body and so that was really scary. And then thankfully, the third thing that I had wrong was I was a big runner at the time and I had a knee injury, which didn't have anything to do with my knees buckling. I just had like pain under my knees from running too much. 
So um, she recommended me to a sports therapist. And uh, I was just, when I left that appointment, though, I felt so incredibly lost. Mm-hmm. And um, then a f- about a week later, I went to the sports therapist to talk about my, my running injury. And it was during that appointment that she asked me if my knees ever buckled. And I just said, well, there's a strange thing that happens when I laugh. It doesn't have anything to do with my running. And she thought that she'd heard of that. And she thought that that was called cataplexy and wrote that down for me. So that was my key moment. Um, and I feel really lucky because I think if you think about how long I search for an answer, you know, my cataplexy started when I was 21. And ultimately, I found the right words at 24. Hmm. Um, and my sleepiness started around 18. And I found these. So I guess my sleepiness progressed for about six years, my cataplexy for about three years. But one you know, actually articulating that there was issues to doctors. It was really only a few, a few doctors before I finally figured out what, what was going on. And I'm lucky in that way um, because a lot of people with narcolepsy go much, much longer. Yeah. They say the average is eight to 15 years wow. between symptom on- onset to diagnosis. That's very sad. And that's, yeah. that's so long to go without knowing what's going on or like with terrifying symptoms and the ramifications for your life because yeah. oh, I was pretty much like barely scraping by in law school but imagine if I went all of law school I probably wouldn't have graduated you know and so when people are I just my heart just my heart just melts when I hear stories uh, and there's just so many of people going 15 or 20 years and and the choices they end up making in their life or the, the things that end up happening to them in that time because they didn't know right <laughs> it's just drives me crazy and and drives me to do everything I do. Tell me about Project Sleep, how that got started and what you're doing with that. So I was, uh, um, I had been in the sleep field for about five years before I did Project Sleep. And so I had been to a lot of conferences. I had engaged with all the different organizations that were out there in the sleep space and participated in different advocacy and awareness activities. And um, and so ultimately, it was a hard choice, but I decided to found Project Sleep because I felt like there was an unmet need mm-hmm. as far as a really patient-driven organization dedicated to raising awareness about sleep health and sleep disorders. So, you know, for me, I, I had also felt like often in the media, there was conversations happening about sleep health and there was conversations about sleep disorders, but rarely were people bridging that gap um, in a way that I felt was really important. Um, I felt like there was a lot of products on the market that were being advertised as sleep health products and, and clearly even saying like, this will not, you know, this is not for people with sleep disorders. This will not diagnose you with sleep disorders. But I felt that the people that might be drawn to purchase some of those might actually be people that have sleep disorders. And so, um, you know, just trying to, to, to make sure that our conversation brings sleep health and sleep disorders together and letting people know that, you know, healthy sleep behaviors are important, super important, but there are also sleep disorders and, and they cannot be mitigated by um, just sleep, healthy sleep tips. Hmm. Um, and so um, that, you know, 50 to 70 million Americans are, are out there living with sleep disorders. So, um, you know, we started with a sleep a sleep walk series. We did these walk sleep walks around the country is what really got us started. And that's just developed into, um, we don't do those anymore, but we have so much programming, um, that I'm so proud of. So, um, right now our main programs are, we do advocacy for sleep research and sleep awareness efforts. And we're actually partnered with the sleep research society, uh, here in the U S, um, on the federal, uh, advocacy work. Um, so, you know, it's just really wonderful to help bring the voices of patients um, onto Capitol Hill to be alongside researchers um, and uh, making sure that we're, the federal government here in the U.S. is is funding uh, sleep research at a good level. Uh, so, you know, and I just love that stuff because it brings together my legal background a little bit with my personal passion for storytelling and patient advo- advocacy. And so that's one of our main programs. And then um, we have our Rising Voices of Narcolepsy program, which is something I'm super proud of. And this is our third year that we're training um, 
people with narcolepsy on how to share their story effectively via speaking engagements or via writing articles. Um, and so we've, you know, trained, I'd say, uh, probably over 40 people so far. And this is our third summer of doing this program. So, um, so these people are giving presentations at medical schools, nursing schools, hospitals, um, and classrooms. And so the more people that, you know, we can train to get out there and be sharing their story, you know, I just think will be really powerful, um, to raise awareness about narcolepsy, but also about sleep in general. Um, it's really funny how often, you know, by me opening up and speaking or, or one of our speakers, like people all at once will approach you at the end and say, Hey, you know, I have this going on or, um, I have that. And I had never really talked to anyone about this. I didn't really know sleep disorders were a thing. And so it just creates really wonderful conversations, I think. Um, and then, of course, we're not medical professionals, um, but we can say, well, that sounds like you should check that out or you should talk to a sleep specialist. Right. <laughs> so um, that's one of our main programs. We have a scholarship for students with narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia. And we have a sleep in, which is a campaign during National Sleep Week. And I feel like we have one other... One other program I'm, oh, we have the Narcolepsy Not Alone campaign, hmm. which is a campaign I founded about six years ago just to make sure that people with narcolepsy know that they're not alone. Hmm. Bear with me while I just take a minute to tell you about this episode's sponsor. Zenbev is an all-natural, organic, and dairy-free powdered drink mix that has been clinically proven to relieve anxiety and promote calm, restful, healthy sleep. Zenbev is available in chocolate and lemon flavor, is non-habit forming, and mixes well with water, milk, or your favorite milk substitute. Mine is coconut milk. Zenbev tastes great and offers free shipping worldwide, and you can save 10% off your order right now with the coupon code SLEEPCOACH10 at www.zenbev.com. Z-E-N-B-E-V.com. I have to say, too, your book helped me with my own sleep issues. I guess I, I started my business because I was struggling with insomnia, and I found relief from that by learning more about sleep and actually becoming certified in sleep. And then I used to brag about, like, I go to bed early, I have epic sleep habits, I sleep like eight hours a night. And then reading your book and going, yeah, I, I can relate to this sleepiness thing. And that's kind of my whole goal here is to to help people recognize symptoms and and to get help one of the things that that you had done for me too that was really helpful that I'd like you to to talk about when people know that there's a problem um, they're experiencing symptoms of like excessive daytime sleepiness they're tired all the time they're no they know there's something going on um, and they want to talk to their doctor do you have advice about about what they should say to make sure that they're taken seriously yeah, it's such a it's a, such a hard um, area because I think uh, it's you know not even for us to recognize maybe there's something going on here, but then um, then you have a doctor's response or, or um, reaction. So I you know I try to get people to avoid terms around saying like fatigue mm. or or even tired and try to say that you're sleepy and um, that it's more it's that it's consistent uh you know that it's every day it's not just once in a while and that it's impeding on like your ability to do your job um or to, you know to to get through classes like every day or multiple times a day i think those kind of things might be helpful um if just to avoid uh you know hey we, like there could be a cause that is not a sleep disorder that there's lots of things that are that make people tired um one of the more interesting things I heard about uh, depression, because that's, you know, that's that actually happened to me that that primary care doctor had also the one that had thought that my sleepiness might be normal. She thought maybe it was depression. And that's pretty common, you know, that um, people will get that. Um, and I had for myself, I had I had experienced depression earlier in my life. And, and I felt like this wasn't depression. I felt like I just feel tired. I don't feel depressed. But um I heard a distinction that was really interesting to me recently that um, sometimes with depression, it might be that you're in bed, but you might not be s actually sleeping. 
So I, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I think it's important to say that, you know, there's a difference between being fatigued where you feel tired, but you're not actually physically sleeping, right? you know, um, yeah. versus actually like that you're sleeping a lot or um, every day or consistently every day. Right. Um, yeah. With my own experience, I describe fatigue as like a tiredness of the body and sleepiness, the tiredness of the brain. Oh, I, I love that. I don't need to go lie down and rest my body right now. I need to sleep. I need to fall asleep to feel better. Right. And you know, what's interesting that, about that is that someone that I knew that had a different diagnosis and I asked her, I can't remember if it was, I want to say it was fibromyalgia. And you know, there's a lot of interesting overlap with pain and sleep. So, um, but I did ask her like, what's that like? What does it feel like? And I remember her saying, it's like walking your dog. Like she had a dog. She's like, and that if the dog pulled on the chain, that it felt like her whole arm just wanted to come out of the socket. It was so weak. And interesting when she said that, I started to realize I found for myself, my first sign of sleepiness is an achiness. Hmm. And what I'll do is I'll start massaging myself. I'll start massaging my shoulders. And that is like an early, it's like this discomfort feeling and then achiness. And that's kind of ends up leading to my sleepiness of the brain, <laughs> as you said. Um, but it is confusing, you know, uh, to figure that out and to think that I was even diagnosed for years before I figured out that own pattern in myself and how I was experiencing sleepiness. Um, so it, it's tough. And, and I think a lot of doctors are just not um, familiar with sleep disorders. So uh, as much as people can be educated themselves uh, on what the possibilities are or where the best specialists are in their area or how that all is going to work um, to get in with an actual sleep specialist, I think that's just a really, really important step to make. Can you describe what a sleep attack feels like? Yeah, type 1 narcolepsy with cataplexy, you know, for me, it's very episodic. So usually I say like an episode of excessive daytime sleepiness, sort of, um, a little bit more recently. That's what kind of the language I've been using. And um, because I think the word attack, I've realized, seems like it comes on really, really super quickly, like mm -hmm. a heart attack, like mm -hmm. I'm going to fall over with sleepiness. Uh, or, you know, fall over asleep right away. And I've never really experienced that. For me, it comes on over about 15 to 20 minutes. And it's this gradual, like I said, like an achiness to um, feeling like I'm maybe like I fell down a well or something, you know, where like, um, I'm not hearing everything, or I'm not processing everything. And so it ends up being this dialogue in my head of like, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. Um, and so then eventually, you know, that is, I can sometimes stay awake through this experience. It's just very uncomfortable. And I won't really have much memory of it, but I can seem awake. So if I've, you know, at my last job, if I were in a important meeting, I could kind of like look like I'm, you know, with it, and I could be taking notes, they would be gibberish. Mm. Um, but I could just kind of have this appearance of, of, of being okay. And people never really notice that I've asked friends before, they said, oh, maybe you just looked a little subdued or, you know, um, some of my friends, we went to a dinner and I told them, I said, I'm really, really tired right now. Like I was entering an episode of <laughs> sleepiness as we finally got into a restaurant for dinner. And I said, I just can't, I'm just out of it. And they, and it, it looked to them like I was upset. That's how I looked. Yeah. Well, they tried to engage more because <laughs> they thought maybe if they engaged me more, they'd wake me up or they'd make me feel better because I looked annoyed. <sighs> but really wanted them to not engage with me and just let me be and just let me sit and let me eat and I would get through it. But how long would um, something like that usually last? Oh, it kind of depends. Usually like something snaps me out of it. Um, something that surprises me or, you know, a little moment where I almost dip into, you know, with your head bobbing sort of, and they'll like all at once jerk awake. Um, that's if I'm trying to get through it without sleeping, which is not the best thing to do. The best thing for me to do is recognize I'm getting sleepy and proceed to my closest, you know, nap location <laughs> to take a nap. And so, um, some days that pressure, I call it like a pressure towards REM sleep in particular, cause that's what we understand with type one narcolepsy is, you know, what's happening. And, and so, um, if I'm able to, you know, get into a good spot, whether it's my car or, you know, my bed or whatever, um, to take a nap, then that usually lasts about 15 minutes to 30 minutes. It kind of depends on whether I had a nap earlier in the day or that kind of a thing. So it's about 15 to 30 minutes for me usually. And it's very active feeling. 
it's not like, I think people often think, oh, you have narcolepsy, you get to nap. Like, I'm so jealous. That sounds so cozy. <laughs> and and it's, it can often feel like there's like a radio playing the whole time. It's just very like, um, it's just very active. Mm-hmm. As we know that REM sleep is, you know, a very active form of sleep. Right. And your brain waves are, you know, really kind of powerful and all this stuff is going on. So, um, but, but when I wake up from that, I feel that pressure of REM is gone and I'm able to feel clear minded again for a few hours and feel like myself again. Just as somebody who naps often um, myself, I experience a lot of silly things that people say. Can you, can you share with us some of the dumb things that people have said about your sleepiness or your narcolepsy or people who mean well, but they, they think they're a doctor and they have advice that you've never heard before. <laughs> oh gosh. How much time do we have? <laughs> just, just list them all. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, there's a lot there. Um, I think the hardest for me is just even the word narcolepsy that it, that it induces something in other people that just makes them want to make a joke. Mm. Um, no matter I found even how I present it. Um, but I am even still just getting better, even though I've shared it with thousands of people at this point. Um, I'm getting better. I've realized just to say, it often comes up when I'm going to speaking engagements or something like that. I'll be in a Lyft or an Uber. Do you guys have that up in Canada? Yep. The Lyft and Uber? Yes. Okay. Um, So I'll be in one of those. Oh, what are you here for? I said, oh, I'm speaking. Oh, what are you speaking about? And so instead of just saying narcolepsy and then pausing, because that's that moment that I like my stomach just goes into a knot thinking, okay, what's coming? (laughs) My new theory is to just steamroll through that moment and say, narcolepsy, it's a really misunderstood condition. You might have heard of it. You might think it's a joke. It's actually really serious. (laughs) And um, instead of like, you know, giving up that power to them to say the next thing. Um, but still people just often, I've had people say to me things like, oh, well, are you going to make everyone fall asleep in your presentation mm-hmm. or, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, as if it's just so weird. Cause it's like, as if I'd never heard it before, right. like, you're like, oh, good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's the different thing, which is the, I guess I'd say it's really well-meaning, but, uh, it's people's, uh, desire to make things better. Um, and so in my book, I talk about, you know, a very close friend of mine who just, um, really just wanted things to be better. And we haven't gone through the part of my story where I talk about, you know, starting treatments and and where I am with that. But, you know, um, she just kept thinking, well, have you, have you tried this or how about that? And I just kept trying to, having to shoot down these things. And I know that she's well-meaning because she wants me to feel better, but I think we have a really hard time in our culture of just sitting with discomfort Mm-hmm. And just knowing like there aren't easy solutions for everything. Right. Um, and so having had my dad pass away a few years ago, I feel like it's a very similar, it's just, it's nothing to do with narcolepsy specifically or even illness. It's just, uh, there's different areas of big life things, difficult things that happen to everyone, but that, um, we often don't really know how to approach appropriately and and like trying, I'm really good at saying there's a lot of silver linings to my experience of narcolepsy, but I'm not so much looking for someone else to try to find those for me. Like, Oh, well, at least it's not this, or at least you don't have that. Um, like, (laughs) so there's a lot of that. And, um, one of the worst I think was hardest for me. I was someone, I I really thought that we were going to have a good conversation Um, it was a dentist and he had shared a few things about his son and daughter that sounded like, you know, they had some mental illness issues in their family. They also had some running people that ran. So then I was like really excited to tell him, you know, oh my gosh, well, I just ran the Boston Marathon for for narcolepsy research because I have narcolepsy. And uh, he asked me if I um, prayed and all I needed was uh, to get in touch with the man upstairs in order to uh, make my, uh, to get a good night's sleep. Oh. And so I then tried to explain that narcolepsy was a neurological condition. We understood the neurotransmitters that were missing. And uh, also I hadn't really presented it as a problem. That was what was so weird about that specific incident is that I had presented it with such pride because I, I didn't say solve this for me. And so, you know, it was a little bit hard to swallow that one in particular, especially thinking you're a dentist, do you ask people to pray away their cavities or do you <laughs> use medicine? Right. 
<laughs> so, wow. yeah, it's, it's a really big challenge. And I think the, it ends up feeding in to create a lot of stigma for people. And that's why a lot of people do stay silent about their narcolepsy is because, you know, people's reactions are just all over the place. And, um, people either think narcolepsy is so dramatic that like, you wouldn't be able to have a normal life at all. Like you wouldn't be able to drive or you wouldn't be able to work or that, or they think it's so, so little and insignificant that it just doesn't even matter. Um, and it's really somewhere in between or, or there's a variety of experiences for different people. Um, so even knowing that I have narcolepsy doesn't really even, you know, explain what my experience is because there's such variety across what, what people experience. We're not good at just going, I'm sorry to hear that. Is there something I can do to help? Sometimes you just need someone to go, yeah, sorry about that. That sounds like that sucks. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> be like, Yeah, it does. Thank you. <laughs> I had one friend, I worked at, a, at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and I told her I had narcolepsy, and she said, thank you for sharing with that with me. That sounds really important to you. So the fact that you felt comfortable sharing that with me means so much to me. <laughs> and I was like... Uh, <laughs> what planet are we on? Who are you? It was so nice. It just she just you could tell that it was significant, and maybe she didn't know what exactly to say. But um, yeah, it was just really so. There's lots of there's been also you know good experiences as well. As well. <laughs> what treatments have worked for you? You know, like lifestyle changes, or I don't know, supplements, or natural solutions, or medication. What's what are, would be like your top three? Do you think? Yeah, so I actually have like a, a unique take on this, which mm. is that it's uh, that it's a, you know, should always, always, and I mean, it's not unique exactly, because you just said it too, is that it should always be multi multifaceted approach. Mm. So um, I do take treatments, and they are extremely important. Um, I take medication twice a night, mm. um, and then once a day. Um, and so the nighttime medication, I believe, like helps me sedate into a better form of sleep than I would otherwise get. Mm. Because uh, my brain wants to go into REM sleep so much. That's kind of the theory for how that one works. And then during the day, I just take a stimulant uh, in the morning, which I think helps me get through the morning. And then I do consider naps a form of treatment. Um, and so some doctors do prescribe naps, um, you know, uh, to their to their patients. And um, it, I think the challenge with that is just the logistics. Uh, and so um, as much as um, it sounds like a great and important thing to do just making sure that um you can find logistics that make that something you can actually feasibly do every day um so that's a big part of my treatment uh and then um because for a while i thought i could i could out medicate naps you know and now i've realized that's just not true and um not healthy because at least for me um if i were to take more stimulants it starts to affect my mood really negatively and so maybe I would that day then not take a nap but I'd be also like a really mean person that you wouldn't want to be around so um it's better for everyone if you so have that's kind of the balance <laughs> yeah yeah um as far as like lifestyle changes um and habits I haven't found any that made a particularly big difference for me um I think I just recognize that I believe for me personally like food in general is going to make me sleepy um, I did try, a, you know, a gluten-free diet for about a year. Um, I didn't feel a big difference for me personally, um, but I am a vegetarian for other reasons. So, and I, I don't feel like it affects my sleepiness either. Um, I also get a lot of questions because I have been a big runner. You know, does running make my narcolepsy better? And for me, I, I wish I could say yes, I'm cured. Um, but it's it's really not true. And but that doesn't mean that exercise isn't important to me that makes my life better right and narcolepsy is a part of something bigger which is me my whole person mm -hmm. and so if I'm feeling more confident and, and stronger because I am you know in good shape and and running on a regular basis like that is you know very good thing but it doesn't mean that my cataplexy has been reduced or that I've you know outran my uh, my naps um so I like to give an example like I ran a, a big marathon here in LA um, the Griffith Park Trail Marathon behind my house. So it's through this mountain, up and down this mountain on these trails. And um, that same day, later that day, I did take a big nap after. I probably slept for like two hours after that. But I mean, you know, it's a marathon. Um, and then I did have like a glass of champagne with some neighbors in my courtyard. And we were all joking. And I did have cataplexy that same day. 
And so I just like to remind people that, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm the same day I could run a marathon. I could also experience the symptoms of narcolepsy mm-hmm. and that's okay. I don't have to be just sick or healthy. I right. can be both. Um, and then, um, the last form of treatment that's actually has been super important to me and the thing that I, I really try to scream from the rooftops to anyone that will listen is that I believe that social support is as absolutely crucial and that it, it actually will improve clinical outcomes for people when they do have um, support through support groups, uh, online or in person or therapy. Um, I Because that original doctor thought I was depressed, I did go to see a therapist. I Even though I didn't feel like depression was the right answer, I, I saw her once before I found the word cataplexy. So then I thought, well, I, now I know what's wrong with me. But I had the appointment already, so I went back to see her again. And then I told her, like, so I just told her, like, you know, about finding the word cataplexy and now being on figuring out how to get us, you know, in to see a narcolepsy doctor. And I realized I just like talking to her. <laughs> and so I kept going. And I and I saw her for those next two years as I, you know, navigated law school uh, and narcolepsy. And um, I just feel so fortunate that, that happened that way for me because I don't think I ever would have gotten a narcolepsy diagnosis and thought, oh, I should just get it. I should get it. I deserve a therapist now because, you know, this is going to be a challenge adjusting to a chronic serious condition. Um, and I know how life changing like she was to my experience. Um, and I actually didn't talk about that in my book. And I should have. Um, I, I reached towards the end of like writing it. I was like, oh, I should really add that part. Oh, I'm really <laughs> just want to get it out and be done. Um, but it, it was actually critical. And I can see, I've, you know, I think because there's so so much social stigma, I can see um, through emails that I receive or, um, you know, after speaking engagements, I can see the difference when someone feels understood and they feel seen. And that can be through other people that have narcolepsy or, you know, therapy. therapy but um, I just think that that is absolutely an essential part. And I actually, you know, like to say that I believe that, like, a symptom of narcolepsy should be, like, feeling alone and misunderstood that should be like listed as a symptom so that then when doctors look at like how do you treat a patient with narcolepsy they would consider that um, getting social support should absolutely be a part of that plan Um, and I know that like a lot of people have resistance to that and we all think we're stronger and and better and we don't need you know other people to get through life we can just strong arm it right but um I just feel really passionate that um, connecting with others is just so, so important. Yes. Therapy is amazing. I tell people that all the time. And a lot of people are so afraid to admit that they're talking to someone. I've had friends that are like, I have to tell you, it's kind of a secret, but I'm going to a therapist. I'm like, that's amazing. I went to therapy for like two years and I, I wish I was still going. Yeah, it was life-changing, and I always say it's so nice to go and sit and talk to somebody who doesn't know the people I'm talking about or, you know, is, <laughs> yeah. is invested in me. And, like, where else can you go where you can, you know, besides talking to your number one fan, which not everybody has somebody like that who's 100% supportive no matter what. So, um, yeah, therapy is, therapy is wonderful. I want to be yeah. a therapy spokesperson. I know that and almost like support groups too. I think support groups get like a really bad rap as well. (laughs) You know, um, that people think like, Oh, it's just people sitting around and complaining. Um, I've gotten some of the best advice and, uh, some of the most crucial, like aha moments for me happened in support groups. Mm. So I think they both get a bad rap and, and we should (laughs) go out and make people more okay with them. (laughs) Yeah, we should. Yeah. And I mean, even I guess like Facebook groups are kind of like them, modern um, online support group because as soon as I as soon as I'm involved in something that's new I join a Facebook group for it because I want to be surrounded by other people who know what I'm going through yeah so it's yeah it's so common to want that it is a mix (laughs) it's the way that you know our culture is so um yeah I know people that said that like they got diagnosed with narcolepsy and they just hurt they searched like the hashtag on um twitter and that's how they had found me know like okay I have narcolepsy like what's happening in that world um I'm I probably am not quite as like that's not how I thought originally but I'm so glad that people can then get connected with um you know the resources that are out there yes for sure so I 
you know, published the book now six years ago. And um, it's, I think, you know, one of the funny reactions I get is often people will finish it and then go, okay, I'm ready for book two. Have you started? (laughs) (laughs) It was such a long process just getting that one done and finished. So, uh, you know, it's like both the biggest compliment and then also like, oh gosh, you're right. I mean, because so much has happened since like that and the the last scene of that book that um, I'd love to share at some point. So, um, you know, I don't know when book two will be, but I, you know, I I really appreciate that people are excited to read it already. Um, You know, it just, I, I think what's funny for me also is that I really wrote it for people that do, do not have narcolepsy. Mm. I wrote it for the general public, thinking that it would open people's hearts and minds to our condition. Um, but I think, the, um, and I love hearing from people that had, you know, didn't really know much about narcolepsy, and then they found this and that how much better they understand. Um, but when I hear from people that do have narcolepsy, that it resonated with them, that really touches my heart, you know, and makes me feel like, so glad I did this because, um, you know, I wouldn't want to be out there sharing a story that doesn't resonate with other people that have this condition. Right. Um, so I've had people say like, I feel like you were writing my life story. Like you just snuck into my life and we're and like, actually we're telling mine. I'm like, I promise I, I didn't, it's my own story. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's a really, really big compliment. And, um, yeah, it's just been this wonderful vehicle for me, I think even internationally to be connected um, with people with narcolepsy and the community around the world. So, um, like I, I kept hearing that, you know, when people re- would read it, they said, for the first time, I realized I'm not alone. And I kept getting emails like that from people saying like, I, I'm thinking, I know they're not alone because they're all emailing me, but <laughs> I know how true that that statement is that we all feel so isolated in our own worlds. And so that was really like after I published my book, that's when I decided to start that narcolepsy not alone campaign. Um, and that, you know, just I just t- took a sign and like printed on, you know, basic white paper said narcolepsy not alone and uh, took a picture of that and asked if people would share photos of themselves like holding a similar sign. And so um, that just really took off. And, and we have over 1,400 photos from all 50 U.S. states and like I want to say 49 countries around the world right now. So um, that's just been a really, really powerful thing to show. Um, I usually share that at the end of my my presentations, and um, and I, and it has its own website, narcolepsynotalone.com, um, for people to look at the whole gallery and everything. Because uh, one of the other things you always get with narcolepsy too is to say I've never met anyone else with narcolepsy before. And I don't think that's always so true. I think that narcolepsy is, you know, much more prevalent than people realize. It's not really all that rare. It's one in every 2,000 people. So you might just not realize you've met another person with narcolepsy. And so that campaign, by showing the other photos of of people, you realize it it looks people just like you have narcolepsy. Um, It could be your neighbor. It could be your boss. It could be your teacher, your second grade (laughs) teacher. Um, So that's just been one of the more powerful things that came from my book was that campaign and then just connecting with people around the world and, and getting to um, be part of their experiences and, um, you know, making them feel less alone. <laughs> so your book is available on Amazon and Audible as well, right? Yes. yes. I recorded the audiobook last summer, oh, so it is now Audible, finally. I love Audible. <laughs> I love walking and listening to books and I had read your book already and then I heard it was on Audible and I was like, ah, I would have loved to have listened to it. So I love hearing the author read the book. It just, um, it makes it such like a personal experience and uh, you feel like you know the person. I've heard people say like, oh, I, you, you know, you take me in my, you know, car. I'm like, (laughs) oh God, I'm in people's cars. (laughs) (laughs) You're in my ears while I'm walking. Yes. Yes, but um, yeah, I'm so glad to have that resource finally available for people, and because um, I know a lot of people get sleepy when they read too. So, mm, yep, definitely, yeah, yeah which can and be the a good thing and a bad thing. Was, it was very sleepy to to practice and get it ready, but I got through it. <laughs> <laughs> so, how can people connect with you online? 
Yeah, so there, um, you know, I'm on all the different social media channels as myself, and also Project Sleep has accounts as well. So, um, you know, I love Instagram probably the best, which is how <laughs> you and I met. Um, so that's where I um, am usually the most active. Um, my personal account is at Remrunner, R-E-M, like REM sleep, mm-hmm. REM runner. And then um, Project Sleep is uh, at Project underscore sleep. And um, but we're on all the different social media channels, and um, you know, Project Sleep's website is project-sleep.com, and I have a personal blog, julieflygar.com. So um, yeah, those are some of the, the good ways to to find out more about what's happening. There, there's always something going on, so um, you know, always excited to share um, new awareness or advocacy activities and get people involved in, in what we're doing to try to make sure that sleep research and sleep awareness efforts are uh, being funded. Um, and yeah. Do you have any uh, big events coming up? We just had a big event in Austin, Texas last Saturday. <laughs> so kind of recovering from that. Um, I'll, um, I'll be in Vancouver for the World Sleep Meeting in September. Actually, we are hosting the first ever World Narcolepsy Day. will be September 22nd. Hmm. Um, so that'll be while I'll be in Vancouver for the for that meeting, and I'm really excited to go to London this year um, and Manchester. I guess is where the Narcolepsy UK uh, conference is. They've invited me to speak there, uh, also in September. So um, yeah, you know, just a few things like that. And I'd, this summer mostly I'll be focused on training our new Rising Voices advocates, uh, and so they're out there in their community sharing their story soon. Along with writing your follow-up memoir, of course. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we'll have to see. <laughs> Thank you so much for for sharing your story. And it's going to be interesting for people who don't have sleep disorders and um, such a great resource for people who think that they might or are looking for support. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. This has been the Calm and Cozy Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening, my beautiful bedtime thinkers. Until next time, sleep well and stay cozy. And to my mom, who listens to my podcast every night as she falls asleep. Good night, Mama.